Hello and welcome to Frontline Fundamentals. I am glad you were here today. We're going, my name is David McPeak. Today we're going to be talking about safety axioms. Uh, nine of them based on the article in IP. I, I hope you've had the opportunity to read the uh, article in the magazine. Um, I will say, you know, most time when, when I choose topics for articles for the magazine and these webinars, I, I try to choose something obviously that'll fit in a, a one and a half, two page magazine article and that we can discuss with a fair amount of uh, detail in and out. Today, um, I, I don't know that that's the case. There's nine of these things. So, I mean, even if we took five minutes to talk about each one, we'd pretty, uh, pretty much fill up the hour. So I say that to say, I'll probably go fairly quickly through these and you help me steer the discussion, uh, meaning, chat, questions, comments. Uh, some of these I hope will be very basic and very familiar to you. Some of them uh, may be new thoughts and concepts. So uh, I do want to confirm before I, I get too deep here, uh, can everybody see me and hear me and see a screen behind me with the schedule of Frontline Fundamentals? All right, very good, thank you for that. Uh, also, for those of you who notice, it's, it's blank down here after this webinar. I've got some thoughts on my next sort of 2022 series of articles and whatnot, but if there's any particular topics that you'd like to hear about, um, certainly let me know. So let's jump right into these nine safety axioms. And again, I believe looking through the list of attendees, you all are probably, most of you CUSPs and most of you probably get IP Magazine, just in case you don't. Uh, it's a free magazine. Uh, I, I, I have a column in it every month, or it comes out every two months. So every time there's a new article, and then we do a, a webinar the following month. So this is from the October, November edition of IP Magazine, Frontline Fundamentals. So if you've, you've got the article available as reference, that'd be good. If not, um, yeah, so thank you for pointing that out. So everybody's muted, and this is a... Uh, you know what? There's a reasonably small group. I don't know if I can. Uh, if you if you want to say something out loud, uh, just type in the chat window there to mute and or unmute me, and I'll unmute you. Um, most of the time, we get a whole lot of folks in these things, so that wouldn't work. So it's set up as a webinar. I believe next year we're going to set it up more as a meeting, so everybody will have the ability to unmute themselves. Because one thing that uh, if any of you have ever been with me in in, in any session, be it training or conference or webinar or whatever. Uh, I love participation. So if you hate to type, I understand that's a challenge to participation, but uh, that, that is at least for today, your option. Or raise your hand and, and, and or say unmute. But let's jump in here. These safety accidents, and let's get me out of the way for a second so we can kind of read through them. Uh, the first off, uh, the first two really tie together. Safety must be led and culture drives behavior because obviously leadership is part of what creates culture. People are not how we wish they were. That one is huge. And that, in terms of trends that I see right now, may be one of the more important ones. Uh, we won't spend much time talking about number four, replace common sense with common knowledge. That was actually a article that I wrote in IP Magazine uh, three or four months ago, and we had a webinar on that topic. So I don't wanna to spend a lot of time on it today, but, but we will talk about what it means. 
one that's, that's really important to me, especially in terms of safety, is measure what you want. And I guess implied in that is, I mean, it's kind of easy to look at that statement and say, well, duh, what else are we going to measure? measure? What do we measure in terms of safety? A whole lot of what we don't want. We'll talk about that in a minute. An interesting one, something that, that I just learned and thought about recently from somebody else, know the power of why in incident investigations. We all get that. Um, you know, the five why method, ask why, ask why, understand why. Uh, nothing wrong with the word why. But somebody mentioned uh, to me one time, maybe maybe change that question of why to what, at least when you're talking about folks involved in the incident. So that might be a new thought for some of us. Safety by design and defense in depth. And, and number eight really say the same thing. Never need protective equipment, especially your PPE. We'll talk about that. And then also something else that I personally just learned recently, at least the way it's phrased, is to make everything we do in safety plural. I'll leave that alone right now, and uh, we'll get into that. But and, and here's where it may be a little challenging because I, I pretty much think everything on all the slides today is, is phrased in the form of a question. And so, like I said, if anybody wants the ability to unmute yourself, just let me know. But what, and if you want to answer, I would love for you to in the chat window, uh, any of these questions, but what happens to safety in the absence of leadership? Is safety possible without leadership? And a lot of these concepts will start to tie together as you think about human error and systems error. In other words, if we, if we didn't need leadership, we could count on any one individual to work safe. And if you've studied human performance, we know people are fallible, even the best make mistakes and those kind of things. But culture drives behavior. We talked about that. And if, if, in the absence of leadership, first of all, it's it's a play on words, of course, but, you know, is there even such thing as the absence of leadership? In other words, if nobody's leading at all, that is, by definition, a form of leadership, and that will create a certain kind of culture. And then safety leadership, because when we talk about safety leadership, I can't stress enough, when we talk about leadership in general, we talk about positional authority and personal influence. So whether you have the positional authority or not, everybody has a certain amount of influence. But too often, everybody else is the safety leader. And I hope that makes sense. Is, you know, here's somebody that needs training, but I don't work in the training department, so that's not my problem, not my responsibility. Here's an incident that needs to be investigated, but I'm not part of the formal incident investigation team, so I'm not gonna be involved in that. Here is a concern that I have with the work that's going on right now, but for whatever reason, I don't feel comfortable speaking up. Here is a near miss, near hit, good catch, whatever you wanna call it, that needs reporting. Somebody else should report. Everybody, is and has to be a safety leader. And, you know, when you say safety leadership, a lot of different ways we could define that. And, you know, one that somebody said to me that I somewhat like, somewhat don't for different reasons, you know, 
doing the right thing in terms of safety. I think the problem with that is sometimes we define right differently and circumstantially, but it is having that questioning attitude. It is following the rules and the procedures. It is stopping when unsure using some of those tools. And somebody made a great point. Where's the great point go? Uh, it is difficult for me to do something that hasn't been modeled to me. And, you know, at work, probably don't realize how much we do this. We tend to behave the way our leaders do. So in the absence of any leadership around safety, what might that encourage people to do? Behave like safety is not important, not follow the rules. Not Somebody said cut corners. No doubt we may be encouraging some of those kinds of things. So that ties into culture drives behavior. And leadership creates culture. People create culture. You create culture. We're all safety leaders, so understand that. But uh, I'd love if you could, everybody just answer yes, no. If you really hate typing, you can just type Y for yes and N for no, okay? Uh, but the first question, I'm really interested in, in your thoughts on this. Do you behave differently at work than maybe you do at home? And do you behave differently at home or at work maybe than you do at church? Or do you behave differently at church than you do at a sporting event? <laughs> do you behave, as I was thinking about this question, I was thinking about like, what if it's a sporting event where I'm going just to watch like a college team or a, or a professional football game or something like that? And I kind of like the teams or whatever else, but what if it's my kids' sporting event, right? Do I behave differently then? Why? Why, why do we behave differently then um, at wherever we are, a, a variety of different environments? Uh, would you behave differently at a fast food restaurant than you would at a fancy steakhouse? Who knows? Some of us, yes. Some of us, no. The answer, in part, is because culture is what drives behavior. A lot of different definitions of culture, but it, it, some form or fashion of our, our combination of beliefs and values and norms and probably most importantly experiences that are the basis for what we believe and why we do what we do. And so there's different cultures in all these places for sure. And you have to acknowledge in your organization, there's different cultures on different teams, in different departments, in different divisions for the organization as a whole and for each individual. And so I want to read exactly what it says in the magazine article, because I believe this to be a very true statement. Now, it makes it sound ridiculously easy, and it's not, but culture drives behavior. This may be the mo most important axiom. And I didn't say this, I should. This is a list of nine safety axioms. This is not an all-inclusive, comprehensive list of everything that you need to do to work safe, or as an organization, everything that you need to do to promote safety. It's, it's just nine things that are worth us talking about. This may be the most important axiom because if you get the culture right, everything else will take care of itself. Do you agree or disagree with that? There's where you can hit your why or no again. Uh, if you get the culture right, everything else takes care of itself. And the next question, if you agree, is, well, how do you get the culture right? Which is a much bigger conversation than we can have today. Uh, I always do start with 
uh, I love Stephen Covey's, you know, your circle of control, which is you, and then your circle of con uh, influence, which is your team, and then worry about your circle of, con of concerns. But if culture is indeed what drives behavior and we get the culture right, then if we truly had an outstanding culture, we would probably at least most of the time get outstanding performance in whatever it is metric that we're trying to measure, safety included. So those two things are important to acknowledge. And, and another thing that the article mentions is safety works with just the nuts and the bolts. In other words, it gives some specific examples, you know, pole top and bucket rescue, the procedures for that, the work methods for that, the training for that. Grounding, same kind of thing. Uh, you know, any, any technical training that you go through and all those rules and work methods and procedures and checklists and processes that you have, reason for them. I'm not knocking those things. Those things are extraordinarily important. And to a certain extent, they work no matter what else you do because people do have an innate need and want to stay safe. But the reason we started with safety must be led and culture is what drives behavior is because the technical stuff can only ever go so far. And somebody said to me once, and, and you may have heard it said before, safety is an art and a science. So when we're talking about the science, that's where we're talking about fall protection and PPE and, and rules and work methods, procedures, those sort of things. But when we talk about the art of safety, that's where we're talking about leadership and culture. And I think those, in some senses, may be more important than that technical training. You probably can't leave either one off out, right? And, and for a given task, for sure, nobody can do, do whatever task it is unless they're qualified through training to do that task. But again, there's a limit there. But if we start to incorporate leadership and culture and then some concepts from human performance, which we're getting ready to talk about, then we can really make an effective safety and health management system. And to elaborate on that, an effective safety and health management system. People are not how we wish they were. And there's two things there. Well, there's a lot of ways we probably wish that other people were. Like, for instance, we're talking about safety right now. We wish people would just work safe. And we wish people wouldn't get hurt. We wish people wouldn't do silly things. We wish people wouldn't make mistakes. Another way of saying that is we wish people were perfect and they're not the, you know, the other thing back to leadership is people are also not like us. And we do tend to wish other people were like us in terms of their motivations and risk tolerance and how they like to communicate those sort of things. So lesson there, but specific to our conversation right now, how do we wish people were? And you could almost change the question around and say this, how do we assume people are? And I know you're sitting there thinking, I never assume other people are perfect because I know they're not. Think about your safety and health management system. Think about how people react when somebody get hurt, gets hurt or an incident occurs. Do we acknowledge that there may have been an error that was human error that was system induced? Or do we seek to blame that work? Do we make the assumption that since, and how many times have you ever said this? I can't believe that happened. We've got a rule or a procedure for that. And I know either that person or that group that was involved in the incident, I know they were trained on it. 
And I told him a thousand times exactly what to do and exactly what not to do in that situation. No way, given how good our safety program and process is around whatever this, this thing is, that somebody could ever get hurt. Not true, because people are fallible, even the best make mistakes. People aren't perfect. And I think, and it's not with bad intentions at all, but a lot of safety and health management systems, and truth be told, a lot of safety and health professionals and a lot of operations professionals tend to make that assumption that people will perform consistently and perfectly. And they're just not going to do either. So the implication for the safety and health management system, and that's why in the study of human performance, I love their two goals, reduce errors, manage controls. I think we spend so much time on the reduce errors sometimes we forget about the managed controls, which is do everything we possibly can to keep people from making mistakes, eliminate human error as much as possible, but acknowledging that it not can, but will happen. How then do we protect people from their mistakes and protect systems from their mistakes so there's no negative consequences? And that becomes really important. I, I do think that um, in, a, in a lot of people that I talk to and in a lot of uh, incidents that I've investigated and, and just other things that I've been involved in, I see a lot of that attitude, whether even people realize they have it or not, of my program's perfect, so I'm done with it. I've, I've, we've written the perfect program. We had employee involvement. It, it's compliant, and it, and it exceeds all the, the applicable OSHA and ANSI performance consensus standards. And, and it's real, it, it, it doesn't use that same language. It, it's real simply stated. It tells you exactly what to do, mentions what you shouldn't do. We've trained everybody on it. We communicated it well. We've got mutual understanding from the training. And once you believe that's true, then the next thing is, well, we're done. We're done with that. We got that problem fixed. We'll move on to the next thing. Because and it's just simply not the case. That's part of the reason safety is so difficult because it has to be an ongoing thing as well. So people are not how we wish they were. Safety must be led, culture drives behavior. People are not how we wish that they were. The next one is really, really important. And, and I actually mentioned in my article again from a few months ago, wrote an article about common sense and, and kind of presented it in a way of maybe the best way to talk about common sense and whether it exists or not is to assume that it does. And then, you know, if common sense existed, would we ever blank? Like our keys in the car, slip on ice, touch a hot stove, uh, you know, whatever else. Regardless of how you feel about that, and that's that's a little bit of play on semantics too, and I don't want to debate whether we think common sense exists or not. But to prefer common knowledge over common sense, especially when we're talking about safety, I do think is absolutely critically important. Because common knowledge, back to my example earlier from the safety and health management system, I said we've done training on it, and that training was mutually understood, meaning everybody got the same message. We have a, if you don't think this is true, um, somebody pick a task that you think uh, somebody in the field might be doing right now at your organization and just type it in for me. Any, any task.
All right, tapping and stopping and excavation. Um, you know, think about whatever task it is that's going through your mind right now and or one of those that, that other people mentioned. If I went out and visited hot stringing would be a real good example or directional drilling of this. If I went out and visited 20 crews for that one task, number one, think about how many sets of rules and procedures and processes you have for that task. Hopefully just one mixed messages kind of thing. How many different work methods do you think I would see being employed around that task? Would everybody be doing it the exact same way or would 20 people be doing it 20 different ways? And I'm not saying that in and of itself is a bad, horrible thing. It depends on how far off we are and for the reasons of the deviations and whatever else. But, you know, when you think about it that way, if common sense really existed, and we all had the same level of quote unquote common sense, then jobs would typically be done according to standard operating procedures. There we wouldn't talk about things like normalization and deviation. So common knowledge implies training and not only training, but evaluation. And when we talk about evaluation in training, one thing I think that's important to mention is what you're doing in training is trying to establish what is the minimum. It's kind of like we always talk about standards are written to provide the minimal level of protection and we should go above and beyond. I agree. But in training, I think one problem with training programs too is, is we try to make everybody the absolute best and the absolute most subject matter expert as part of our training. And the question really is, what is that baseline of common knowledge that you have to have to do this task? What skills and abilities do you have to have to do this task? And what level do those skills and abilities need to be at? That's what people need to be evaluated to. Not everybody has to be the absolute best at whatever it is, because then we can start to establish common knowledge and not rely so much on common sense. The next one. Measure what you want. And I think this is important. And th this is really another way of saying human HP principle four, which says people uh, achieve high levels of performance based on the support and encouragement they get from their leaders, peers, and subordinates. I have a, a presentation I do at conferences and, and keynote kind of thing from time to time. And the title of that presentation is Lead to Win. And it talks a lot about this concept of, especially in safety, we tend to spend like 90% of our time, and I'm making up a number there, let's say the majority of our time, we tend to spend the majority of our time focused on exactly what we don't want, which is people getting hurt. And, you know, so a couple of challenges there is open up your, your safety and your work methods, man, or your safety or your work methods, man, if they're two different. Do most of the statements start with thou shalt not, like you see on your screen right now? Or do they actually tell people what to do? In training, do we spend more time showing people the correct way to do something? Or do we spend more time telling them 18,000 ways not to do something? Now, hear me say, there's value in everything that I'm talking about right now. In pre-job briefings, do we spend time talking about what could go wrong? Absolutely, we should. But how about what could go right? And then think about 
How do you measure safety? If I ask you the question right now is whatever respective organization you work at, is it a safe organization? I would imagine looking through the list, most of you are going to say yes, and that's a good thing, and I would agree. But what if I challenged you and said, prove it? Where would you immediately go to? All these little things right here, my dart rate, my EMR. Uh, I started just typing letters, and I hope that they even all stand for something. But uh, lost time, days away, rate, total case incident rate, a preventable vehicle accident rate, how many days I've been injury-free or since it's been since you know, 18 years since my last fatality and I hadn't had an OSHA citation in so long, whatever else. All that stuff, every single bit of that stuff measures exactly what we don't want, which is people getting hurt. And how much time do we spend talking about those things? And it, it, it really, in some senses, starts that conversation about being reactive or being proactive. I don't know how many of you know Pam Tompkins. Uh, from uh, Set Solutions, but she's just a fascinating person, very smart individual, great trainer. But one of the things that I heard her say one time that I, that made a lot of sense to me was she was, she was at, we were debating that. Is it better to be reactive or proactive? Most of us are going to say proactive, and I agree, especially when we're talking about either responding to an incident or reacting to it or preventing an incident or reacting to it. For sure, proaction is better. But she made a good point, and I've never really thought about it this way before. She said that the first step, if you want to get really good at being proactive, you've got to get really good at being reactive. So reaction is part of proaction. In other words, if I wanted right now, if, if we went back and, and the article inspired you or something else, and or, or maybe the, some of the things we're saying right now, safety must be led, culture is what drives behavior. Maybe somebody would think, okay, well, I need a better culture. We're going to do some leadership training. You know, where would you start? It's very difficult to determine where to start without looking at some of these numbers here and without doing some kind of common cause analysis on a lot of your incidents and, and things that have happened. Observations and audits. When you go out in the field, and probably the word audit here may, may work better than observations. Uh, I don't know how many of you are doing behavior-based observations or, or any of those kind of things. And, uh, you know, are we really looking, as we're watching people work, are we really looking more for opportunities to reinforce, acknowledging that sometimes even when people are doing something right, number one, they don't know it right. They don't know it's right. Number two, they may not repeat it unless we tell them. Are we really looking for opportunities to give positive feedback and encouragement, remembering HP principle four? Or, and especially right or wrong, is the perception, I'm trying to find you doing something wrong. And then we get into, you know, and I'm not discounting the value of wheel chops for sure. I don't take it that way. But then we get into you got a crew doing some hot stringing while they're over an interstate and like, I mean, a crazy hazardous job where a lot could go wrong with a whole lot of steps. And, uh, you know, there's tractors, uh, tractor trailers driving underneath and whatever else. And, and they're doing everything absolutely perfect. But maybe because somebody's out doing an audit and they're looking for something wrong, 
they see maybe a wheel chop on one of the wrong side of the wheel, or it's not there on one of the trucks that's parked on flat ground somewhere. Or they open up the first aid kit and figure out that the bee sting spray expired two days ago. And it's winter right now, and there's no bees out anyway. Now, should wheels be chopped? Yes, absolutely. Should contents of the first aid kit be up to date, readily available, and targeted at incidents that could occur? Absolutely. Those things are important. But do observations and audits lose value because we spend so much time trying to find something wrong that we can fix rather than trying to find something right that we can reinforce? I'll leave that up to you to think about. Uh, and, and then also to investigation and analysis of incidents and reporting. And, and I've gotten aware when, when I'm talking to a varied group like this, I've started using the term reporting that encompasses near misses, near hits, good catches, inconsequential errors, um, not at fault incidents. I can't, I, I, I've heard so many different phrases and, and I've seen so many different uh, organizations that don't get reports at all and don't understand why. And they've created so much confusion about what's what that nobody even knows what to report if they wanted to. And then when they try to report something that they'll, they'll literally make a phone call or, or send it in through the electronically or on paper or however it's done. And the first response they get is, that's not a near miss, that's a good catch. Go report it again through the good catch system. So I just started using the word reporting for all of that, right? Do we investigate and do we analyze good things, those good, good catches that we're talking about? Or do we only investigate when something bad happens and analyze? Do we look for opportunities to improve our safety and health management system when nobody's been hurt for the last three years? Or are we just satisfied with where we are? So it, it really is measure what you want. That is not at all to say or imply you shouldn't have the reactive and, and the data that's up here. Absolutely, you shouldn't. There's a heck of a lot of value in it. And if you're not analyzing it, you should. But you should also spend at least some time analyzing and thinking about and talking about what we do want. You know, last, last point here. How many times, what does almost every safety meeting you go to start with? Uh, somebody tell me, and I'm sorry, that might require a little bit of typing, but every single time you go to a safety meeting, what does it start with? All right, people call different things different things. Um, but a, a safety share, sometimes some people call it a safety brief where you give a quick little safety message or a safety minute, something like that. Fine with that. Uh, what happens next? I'm willing to bet large sums of money. We pull up all or some of these numbers right here and we start talking about whether our charts are going up and down and whether we're good or bad, right, wrong. And then we probably go through all the incidents that we've had, or at least the major ones. And then, you know, maybe we, we even pull some kind of catastrophic incident 
some photos or some videos from that, from the internet and show that. And in other words, we spend a whole lot of time talking about what we don't want. And again, there's value in that, but challenge yourself. Think about what you do want. Now, this one is interesting. I'm going to get me out of the way again so you can read the whole screen there. So the power of why and what? Why is behavior occurring? Why did this incident happen? Absolutely great questions to ask. And I'm just going to uh, read and give credit where credit's due because this, this comes from Consumers Energy, conversation I was having with uh, a couple of their folks that work there. And, and they were saying, you know, it, it's some of it I'll acknowledge is probably in the way the question's phrased sometimes. But the perception was post-incident that they were asking, why did you do that? And that was being perceived as them looking to blame them because the, the, at least the way they heard the question being asked was, why did you do that? And so as they say, what helped them move away from a blame the worker culture was to shift that question of why did you do that? to what happened. And so it, it says, the, I'm, I'm reading again straight from the article in IP right now. Why is it extremely powerful, but I also want to give a shout out to Consumers Energy for their approach. With a deep understanding of HP, they shifted their questioning from why, which potentially makes people feel defensive to what happened in incident analysis. And then uh, they summed it up by saying, lead with what happened instead of why did you do that is definitely leading us away from a blame the worker culture. And is helping us take a look and repair the systematic issue behind the incident. Let me read that last part again. It's definitely helping uh, leading us away from a blame the worker culture and is helping us take a look at and repair the systematic issue behind the incident. I mean, I think actually the word I put in the article was that's beautiful. Thank you for sharing that. But it is that blame the worker culture rather than systems and, and, and those sort of things. But, and I, I really do wish that you had the ability to talk right now. So if you want to type in unmute me, I'll let you. But does anybody, that was a new concept to me. In every incident investigation analysis class and training that I've ever been to, the question that it focuses on almost entirely is my, why, 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 why. And again, I think there's a, a very good reason for that. But I kind of like their concept of starting at least with what happened to eliminate maybe some defensiveness. And I would just love thoughts from the group on that. And maybe do you do it or, or not? And here's what I'm actually going to do right now. Um, for whatever reason today, and it's a good thing for us, it's a relatively small group. So I'm clicking on allow to talk on everybody, which should give you the ability, I think, maybe to unmute yourself. But I really, this whole concept of why and what, um, that mean anything to anybody or, or make you think about it differently, and especially in terms of how we phrase the questions. 
I am for my own benefit right now going to assume that you're all frantically trying to unmute yourself and whatever I did didn't work. And you just all have really good ideas, but you can't share them. And not just that nobody's saying anything. So the next two definitely go hand in hand. We start with safety by design and defense in depth. And then the, the next axiom, number eight, is never need your protective equipment, especially your PPE. And, you know, this is, I said earlier, the nuts and bolts of safety. In, in David's world, this is the nuts and bolts of safety. If you understand this to a very high level of detail, you can work safely around any task. I think the problem is that you see most of the time is this whole process starts with and ends with PPE. It's just with whatever hazards identified, we put our PPE on so we're protected, we go to work. And honestly, if you do the rest of this correctly, you won't actually need your PPE. Now, I made somebody pretty mad yesterday with that statement in a class, so I'll, I'll qualify it here in a minute. Um, but safety by design is really at the engineering controls and safety devices level and up. And most of the time, that requires a little, at least something to happen some time period before anybody ever actually gets on the job site to start performing the work. And then you get into defense in depth. Truth be told, if you can't eliminate, you should be doing all the rest of this stuff. And again, it's not a, a one-step little procedure. It, it is truly a process that needs to be well thought out. And if you have that skill, you can work safely around anything. Another way of looking at that is this flowchart. Never need your protective equipment, especially your PPE. But just walk through the concepts. Does a hazard exist? If you want to do a really interesting experiment like this afternoon, later on, or tomorrow, go talk to your frontline workers and ask them this question. Tell them to tell you the difference between hazard and risk. Or as a matter of fact, maybe even go ask some safety professionals and operations folks and whoever else. It truly amazes me how many people don't know the difference between those two things. And while that may seem a little trivial to start with, to truly be able to apply the concepts of safety by design and defense in depth through the hierarchy of controls, you have to understand the difference between a hazard and a risk because your first choice is always going to be to eliminate the hazard, always. Assuming, or if you can't do that, never assume you can't do that, always check. Can you eliminate the risk? And this step gets skipped so often because we group risk and hazards together and we assume, okay, I can't eliminate the hazard, so I've automatically got risk. And that becomes really, really important when we start talking about reducing the energy associated with the hazard along with the risk through exposure, length of exposure and that sort of thing. And, and I mean, this top row right here just doesn't work if you don't understand the difference between a risk and a hazard. Once we've done that, try to eliminate as much as possible, then try to reduce the energy and the exposure as much as possible. Make that task specific, by the way. Then we establish defense in depth through safety devices, administrative controls, things like training, that sort of thing, work method. 
warning devices and PPE to provide multiple layers of protection. That's that process. So to go back and make sure I'm crystal clear, because I don't want anybody to walk away 20 minutes, 20 minutes from now and say, hey, David said we don't have to wear PPE anymore. Never need your PPE. And as somebody in a recent frontline class said, really cool statement. I like it. And I, I agree with it. So I'm going to read it and you tell me, you can type because obviously everybody's microphones are broken. Um, yes or no? Do you agree? Yes. Do you not agree? No. Said this. Uh, where is it? It should be everyone's goal to never use their PPE for their entire career. Agree or disagree? It should be everyone's goal to never use their PPE for their entire career. That's word for word, a quote that somebody said in the frontline class recently. And I mean, was it yesterday? Maybe the day before yesterday, doesn't matter. But earlier this week, I was going through a, it was a job briefings class, but uh, somebody got pretty upset about that statement. <laughs> and I see no in all caps, so there we go. Here's, uh, it is a play on words and semantics, and I, I kind of really... I tried to think about a statement that I could defend as true if I truly had to, but one that would get people really thinking about going back to this hierarchy of controls here, PPE at the bottom. Okay. Somebody uh, give me a, give me PPE, uh, give me a type of PPE. One that's required for most of the work that you do. All right. Safety glasses. That's a good one. Okay. So safety glasses provide protection from, uh, you know, what kind of hazards do safety devices or, or glasses protect us from? And now we're getting some good discussion. Thank you, Craig. All right, so uh, flying debris, right? So if we really start to think about engineering controls, and let's say we're using a grinder and there's flying debris or whatever else, right um then what we can do is the grinder number one should have a guard on so we make sure it's there maybe if we have the opportunity uh we use some kind of ventilation or or use the airflow outdoors or or whatever where the debris blowing away from us in other words we work in a way and we do everything in a way possible to where the debris doesn't exist and Safety, uh, you know, PPE at the bottom, because what it means, the difference between, let me say that you should always wear your PPE and you should always technically use your PPE. You should just never need it. So I'm wearing my safety glasses. I don't have safety glasses on right now, but I should always wear my safety glasses. But if I actually need those safety glasses, what that means is there's something coming at my eye and I just hope the safety glasses work. All the more reason to wear it, right? Rubber gloves, somebody said. Look look at the chart here. How about work at de-energized and flag tag and grounded and all the kind of practical stuff? Then we don't need our rubber gloves. How about grounding, substitution and reduction, engineering controls, administrative controls, like only work one phase at a time, don't put yourself at two different potentials, all those sort of things. If you did all that, Technically, and whoa, technically, technically, you wouldn't need your rubber gloves, but you always wear your rubber gloves, right? Cover up. Think about cover up. That's a kind of protective equipment by definition. Literally by definition, the manufacturer will tell you what's it for. Brush contact. 
It's not intended for you to ever actually touch it and it provides you protection. You're just hoping it does when it's there. All the more reason to have it there. Work gloves, right? You know, what's better? If this is a knife and this is my hand, should my work methods and everything be such that I'm really testing and counting on the work gloves? Or should it be I cut away from my body? Uh, somebody said, uh, what was the quotes the other day? Somebody said, cut your buddy, not your body. And then somebody said something along those same lines that I thought were pretty funny. But anyway, we should never actually need those gloves, but we should, should use them. And I, I see a hand up, and I hope that means somebody wants to talk. Hey, David, can you hear me? I can. Go ahead, David. You know, you, you recently did a job briefing, train the trainer for us. These people have been in the industry for 20 plus years, multiple decades. And I've already seen in the last few days requests for engineering controls and for things to be added to the system. People are talking and looking at JHAs and things. Folks literally that have been in the for decades, we have a half day training with them and tell them that this is okay. This is an expectation. And the fruits of the labor are already being paid off and we haven't even rolled out fully the job briefing process. So we, we make assumptions sometimes that folks, because they've been in the industry for a long time, understand the concepts or have been empowered. But until we do so, um, you know, again, a little half day training made all the difference in the world and already seeing fruits from it. Thank you so much for sharing that. And I, I should say, I mean, I, what I'm saying right now is not to criticize anyone or anything or anybody, but uh, in this industry, I think that honestly, I, 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 a lot of it really boils down. I think to when we tell people that rubber gloves are their primary protection and they are. And I think that logic starts to translate into all form of PPE. And so I just, I would challenge you just tomorrow, go to one, go to a job briefing. And listen as hazards are identified to what controls people talk about. I hope I'm wrong, and I hope they're way up here towards the top of this chart. But I'm also guessing for the majority of them, that whole conversation will start and end with PPE. So because, you know, somebody said, and it is a true statement, there are situations, and I would argue, in most situations, especially at the crew level, uh, where you will need the PPE because you were unable to eliminate all the hazards. So even if you can't eliminate the hazards through administrative controls and work methods, you can still work in a way where you don't actually need the PPE. So this was, and I'll actually applaud this organization. They were doing the wrong thing, but doing it really, really well. So I was teaching a class on the hierarchy of controls, what we're looking at right now. And we were talking about this concept. And I mean, they got mad at me. And I didn't even make the statement about uh, never need your PPE. I was just saying PPE is the last line of defense. And they did not like that. And they were, I mean, they wouldn't have any part of it because their training literally said basically safety equals PPE. Now, that was an organizational weakness that needed to be addressed. But again, I applaud the organization because everybody in the room believed it and believed it strongly. And so the example I finally gave was, you know what, I'm not going to debate it anymore. I said, if, if safety equals PPE, and, and that's what you're saying, and all you need is PPE to be safe, 
I looked at one of the people that was kind of arguing real adamantly with me. And I said, just go get me a bucket truck, a rock and a hard hat. He kind of looked at me real funny. I said, I'm serious. I'll meet you outside. I'll give you 30 minutes. Go, we'll meet you outside. And then the whole group was looking at me. I'm like, no, we, we can debate this all day, but I'm going to go up 30 feet in the air in that bucket truck and drop that rock. And according to your logic, as long as you got a hard hat on, you're protected. It started to make sense real quick, like an administrative control, like an establishing a drop zone or not standing underneath that person. Even if you haven't fully eliminated the hazard, there you go. Now let's switch screens. So the hazard still exists. There's that rock that David's holding up in the bucket. I can eliminate the risk by not standing underneath that bucket. And if I do, technically, I no longer need my hard hat. I still wear it. But... I hope that helps, and I hope that makes sense. Challenge people on this. This is an important concept. Don't just settle for PPE. Because the folks in the field, Denver said it well, they're probably going to have to ask for engineering controls and safety devices. They can't make a lot of those themselves. They can't just go out and substitute uh, porcelain insulators for polymer insulators. There's an example of substitution that reduces the hazard. They typically can't, the day of the work, ask for an outage or stop traffic or whatever else on an interstate, maybe, you know, on a side road. But, you know, how often do we do that? Just our best option would be to eliminate traffic, but how often do we just assume we can't? So we just go ahead and set up a work zone, which consists of nothing but warning devices that actually provide zero protection. This is a huge concept, huge concept. It is, again, I mean, Leadership and culture probably aside, this is the most important thing somebody has to know and understand to be able to work safely is this hierarchy of control coupled with this flow chart that you see right here. In the interest of time, the last axiom says make everything plural. And I love this. Um, I give credit where credit's due. Mario Fernandez is, is who taught me this, and I'd never heard it before. And I mean, we're all familiar with the concept, but I really like the way he phrased it was make everything plural. And in the English language, if we're going to make things plural, that means they're probably going to end with an S, right? And S stands for share. And I just thought that was so cool because the way we were talking about the star tool, stop, think, act, review. And I love the star tool and I've always loved the star tool. And I've taught the star tool for the last, you know, tell how long. And I've never thought about adding an S to it, but he said, stop, think, act, review. That's good. But if you've reviewed something, and there's the lesson learned that either needs to be reinforced what we did or something we can do differently, then we got to share that. Or, you know, all those near misses, good catch, the everything I grouped in reporting a while ago. How often, you know, what I find is 10, 15 years ago, nobody reported anything because they were there was a fear that you'd get fired, basically, if, if you reported something. Right, wrong, relevant. Five, six, seven years ago, people started reporting a whole lot more. And now it's kind of like the bell curve is now the reports have started going back down at most organizations. And I firmly believe the reason is there's no follow-up and folks see people reporting things, but they don't hear anything back nothing's shared. So same thing for incident reviews, plural, observations, plural, job briefings, plural. That's why we had a post-job briefing to it, make it more of a process, but I just, I don't know, the simplicity of the way he phrased that with, with everything we do in safety, just share at the end of it, really made a lot of sense and resonated to me. I hope that it makes some sense and resonated with you. 
So that's 52 minutes of our hour. And I'll put these back up here just to sort of um, refresh your memory on the things we've talked about and get me out of the way again. Questions, comments, thoughts, useful, waste of an hour. You got a CUSP point for it, so it wasn't a complete waste of an hour, but thoughts or comments or feedback. So again, if you if you haven't already, please check out the article and all the articles. If you're going I actually say, you know, there's some real good articles in Incident Prevention Magazine. So check that out um, if you haven't already. Uh, there's another one of these frontline webinars coming up on January 12th. Stacy's put a link in there to register for that. Uh, Stacy, if you don't mind, if you've got a link to the forum, I, I, does anybody, do all of you know about the, the IPI forum that we hold monthly, uh, the second Friday of each month? I think it is. Does anybody not know about it? So, okay. So this is a cool thing we do. And I love the forum because what we do is, uh, like I said, I think it's the, it, it is the second Friday, usually, unless it's a holiday or whatnot, of each month. It's completely free. And what you do is you log in. And then what we do is, we let you talk to your peers about whatever it is you want to talk about. And we try to gather a little panel of experts. It's usually Jim Bone, Danny Rain, sometimes Jim Willis, if you're familiar with those names. Uh, we mentioned Pam Tompkins earlier, occasionally her, Matt, uh, some of those folks. But anyway, those panelists will, will somewhat address the issue, but people find a heck of a lot of value in being able to talk to each other and ask kind of poll questions about who's doing what and whatnot. Uh, and there's already been a ton of topics submitted for this week. And some of them are really, really good questions that I promise you'll want to hear the discussion around. So if, you're, if your time and desire permits, it's at 11 o'clock Eastern time this Friday. It's free again. Sign up for it. Even if you can't make it, that's fine. And then uh, come to it and, and see if you think it's worth your while. And if it is, sign up for the rest of it. Uh, if you want to check out any of our education project projects, you could call them projects. Some people call them products. Uh, you can scan that QR code there. That'll take you to our website. Uh, the next series that I'm starting, uh, you've got the link to the next one of these Frontline Fundamentals webinar. Uh, Stacy's putting a lot of links in there too, and I appreciate that. Uh, is recently we wrote a book. Uh, that, that I authored that, that I'm, I'm really enjoying that whole process. But so I thought what would be cool for 2022 in, in the Frontline Fundamentals articles and then the webinars about them is I picked a lot of the books that I referenced and basically tried to write a two-page article about the whole book. And it's going to start with Stephen Covey's The Seven Habits of Highly Effective People, which will be the that topic for that article in the webinar on January. So uh, if, if there's a link to, to the, the hurdle book that we wrote, if you want to check that out, but, uh, if that's a book that you like, or that you read, or even if you hadn't read it, uh, come on January 12th as well. Um, anything else, any other questions, comments? Thank you for, uh, a few of the comments. Uh, now I'm just reading through 
some of the things that people talk. Uh, and I love that. I'm glad if it's reinforcing what you're doing. I hope maybe it it it, it, it at least challenged a couple of ways of thinking here and there. Um, but that's good. And so uh, again, there's our website. If you need anything, reach out. We hope to see you hopefully Friday. I really do. I hope all of you can make it on Friday. If not, hopefully at some future IP events. And everybody, thank you again for being here. Stay safe and be well.